Insole International, in conjunction with the Early Research Academics Committee, presents Insole Talks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Insole Talks. I'm Jennifer Gant, member of the Insole ERA subcommittee within the Insole International Academic Group. I'm pleased to introduce Professor Adrian Walters, who is well known internationally with his feet firmly within the Insolvency Academy on both sides of the Atlantic. While originally from the UK, making his start in academia at Nottingham Trent University, where he helped to establish the Centre for Insolvency and Business Law, he is now the Ralph L. Brill Professor of Law and Director of the Programme in Business Law at Chicago Kent University in the United States, where he has been for the last 10 years. Professor Walters has been a prolific writer in corporate insolvency law and is the co-author of Director's Disqualification and Insolvency Restrictions, which is a leading text on the UK's Director's Disqualification Act of 1986. He's published articles in a number of well-known high-impact journals, such as the American Bankruptcy Law Journal, European Company and Financial Law Review, the International Insolvency Review, the Journal of Corporate Law Studies, and the Law Quarterly Review. He has also collaborated extensively with other great scholars in the insolvency and bankruptcy field. Professor Walters has twice won Chicago Kent's Student Bar Association Professor of the Year and has also won Chicago Kent's College of Law Excellence of Teaching Award. Finally, in 2020, Professor Walters was named to the inaugural Law Dragon 500 Leading U.S. Bankruptcy and Restructuring Lawyers list. Clearly beloved by students and colleagues alike, it's a great pleasure and honor to be able to speak with him today as a part of the Insult Talks initiative. So this interview will begin with a couple of general questions and move on to a few specific questions about your perspective on aspects of insolvency law. Then we will focus on what we as early career researchers can learn from your experience, focusing on publications and then some general advice about your experience within academia and what we might learn from that. Finally, I've got a couple more entertaining questions at the end that will not have been shared with you yet. I promise they won't be zingers or anything like that. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Jen, and thanks for that all-too-kind introduction. My pleasure. Well-deserved, well-deserved. So I'll start with these uh, couple of general questions first. So how and when did you decide to pursue your career in insolvency insolvency law, and what actually impacted this choice? Well, if I'm honest, it was a total fluke. You know, there were very few, if any, dedicated insolvency law classes when I was training to be a lawyer. Insolvency law was something that, if it was taught at all in UK law schools, it cropped up at the back end of a company law class. So I had no exposure to insolvency law at all until I got into practice. And I started my legal career in a medium-sized practice in the English Midlands, having no real idea about what areas of law I wanted to specialize in. And the firm that I worked for was an interesting mix. So it had a strong defendant insurance personal injury practice, but there were also two partners who did a range of corporate and personal insolvency work, including some cases with international aspects. So I got my first taste of it with them during the recession of the early 1990s. And I suppose I've never really looked back since then. So then what actually attracts you in insolvency law compared to other fields of law, if there's anything specific there? Well, I always thought that Roy Good Good summed it up well in the preface to the early editions of his Principles of Corporate Insolvency Law. 
So, you know, it's obvious we have to deal with statutory material, statutory codes like the Bankruptcy Code in the US or the 1986 Act in the UK. And so to that extent, insolvency law is a specialism. But in many respects, it's also one of the last bastions of the, of the generalist. And that was really the point that Roy was making. Uh, everything comes sharply into focus in an insolvency case when there are insufficient resources to go around. You've got to know some contract law. You've got to know some property law. These days, some intellectual property law, maybe some company law, uh, some labor and employment law, uh, which, of course, is an area you know a lot about, Jen, some environmental law, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. Yeah, we have to take our debtors as we find them, and our creditors as we find them, in the situations that, they're, that they find themselves in. And the problems that often need addressing in the crucible of insolvency require more than just a narrow legal expertise. So I would say that the multitude of interactions between insolvency law and other areas of law is what's always been especially appealing to me and, uh, I, I guess, sustained my interest over 30 years. I can certainly relate to that. I think that's certainly one of the more attractive factors to me in my, my study of insolvency as well. So in your view, then, going to the third question, uh, what are the main purposes of insolvency law? Who's Whose interest should it serve? And do you think that these purposes or interests have changed over time or whether they should change? Well, that's a really tough question. So where to start? Well, I guess first things first, I think the scope of our field has changed a good deal since I started out for sure. Uh, These days, I call what I do insolvency and restructuring law. And I suppose I tend to conceive of it in fairly concrete, practical and utilitarian terms. So, you know, we're trying to provide a range of debt and claim resolution options that will provide better outcomes for debtors and creditors than alternatives outside of insolvency and restructuring law, and which at the same time hold out some possibility of spillover benefits for other stakeholders through such things as continuity of supply chains or continuity of employment for employees. So on that basis, I guess I'm probably a bit more of a a proceduralist, though if I'm honest, I've never found the whole Jackson-Baird-Warren debate and and its progeny to be especially useful in thinking about the questions that I'm interested in. It's always seemed to me to operate at the level of generality that I find difficult to get a handle on, the sort of way that my mind works. So I guess riffing off of that, I think there are, there are clearly legitimate questions about whether you should be able to use insolvency law to compromise, say, tort liabilities or environmental liabilities, and therefore effectively socialize loss. But I tend to see those questions as being broad public policy questions about how to allocate losses that, depending on how you answer those questions, may end up placing limits on insolvency law's reach or leading to the conclusion that the losses are so systemic that we need a different approach rather than just our standard insolvency and restructuring machinery, which does a pretty good job of of marshalling assets, resolving and compromising claims and binding in holdouts. So to give you an example, you may decide that it's a bad idea from a public policy perspective that the Sackler family is getting third-party releases in Purdue Pharma's Chapter 11 plan of reorganization. But once that plan's confirmed, as is very likely, 
it'll represent a balance of competing interests accomplished through the bankruptcy system that arguably favours the debtor and the settlers at the possible expense of opioid victims and the public agencies who are cleaning up after the opioid crisis here in the US. So to me, it's therefore an open public policy question whether in the trade-off we want taxpayers to pick up some of the tab, which basically means letting Purdue and the Sacklers limit their liabilities through Chapter 11, or whether we should try to avoid socialising the losses as far as we can by presumably letting tort creditors dismantle Purdue and go after the Sacklers. Now, to me, there's no easy answer to what insolvency law should be doing in that kind of case. But once the losses are no longer purely private and are more systemic in nature, we face public policy choices about the extent to which we should allow those losses to be socialised through an insolvency proceeding. And as I've sort of intimated, I don't see that as being something we can necessarily resolve within insolvency law or insolvency law discourse. So for me, I suppose insolvency law is the tail of the public policy dog, not the other way around, if that makes any sense. It does make a lot of sense, actually, because there's this quite a lot of debate right around which which end should be wagging which. I mean, that's where a lot of this, in fact, it's a lot of my discussion right now and the research that I've been doing recently. Um, but you mentioned uh, Douglas Baird Warren and all them writing in the mainly 80s and 90s. Just out of curiosity, how much in your time in insolvency law has the law changed in terms of how we approach it from an academic standpoint? Well, it's a good question. I think that's a bit of an easier question than the last one, Jen. So, so thanks for, uh, for having softened me up, given me a bit of an easier one. I think there's been a huge shift in my time from insolvency law being thought of as synonymous with winding up. That's the obvious big, big change. And it, again, I referred already to uh, how I conceptualize or think about what we now do as insolvency and restructuring law. Whereas when I started out, the 1986 Act was still very new. And what we used to refer to as the rescue culture was only really just getting underway in the UK. So that's the first really big shift in my, in my time in the, uh, in the business. Secondly, I would say, looking back, I grew up in an era when exchange controls were very much still a thing. And capital couldn't move around the globe at the stroke of a key on a computer keyboard as it can today. Uh, so capital mobility and the ease with which capital can, can now move and that development over the last 25, 30 years has brought with it a significant expansion in cross-border financing and therefore, of course, cross-border insolvency, uh, which in turn has really brought sort of the international insolvency, cross-border insolvency into sharp relief. And it's no great surprise then that we have spent an awful lot of time within the academy amongst policymakers looking at how we handle cross-border insolvencies. Well, that sort of takes us neatly into my next question, which is actually about the developments in international uh, and regional cross-border insolvency law. But thinking about it from the perspective of soft law and, and the efforts of UNCTRAL and uh, the European Union and the European Insolvency Regulation and that kind of thing, I mean, how has this involvement in, in managing cross-border insolvency affected the evolution and practice of domestic insolvency laws, in your view? I think the international organizations have affected things an awful lot. So you mentioned UNCTRAL and the EU. Also, of course, is the Bretton Woods institutions, and they've been influential not just in the developing world. 
So you see now policymakers in developed countries, including the UK, now yeah, they care about their standing in the World Bank's doing business rankings. Uncetral, to its credit, I think, has been a source of legislative guidance for countries looking to reform their laws. Done a lot of work in that regard. You know, its flavor may be a little bit too American for some tastes, but I think they've tried to do a fairly careful job. And the EU, the restructuring directive is another significant milestone that would have been inconceivable in the 1990s. So we've come a long way, and certainly sort of with the latest phase of, of globalization, the directions the world is now going in. It's a very different landscape from, from the one it was back in early 1990-something when I was starting out. I'm looking into the future now. This is my final question for you on the more technical aspects of insolvency. So thinking into the future, what are the major trends, the changes that you see currently occurring in not just insolvency law, but the economy, social life, politics, obviously Brexit, COVID, all these things come into it as well, and in the way that business is done? that you think will shape the future of insolvency law and insolvency research? Uh, Well, I suppose starting in my own neighbourhood, a lot may depend here in the US on what reforms to the bankruptcy code the Biden administration and its allies in Congress can get through in the next three years, especially in the consumer bankruptcy and student debt space. I think that's going to be a big area where I expect a lot to happen simply because there's the pressure of a mountain of debt. And in the US, it's student debt. And you know, because of the BAPSIPA reforms, making it more difficult for consumer debtors to access Chapter 7, we, we see an issue again with healthcare debt. So the consumer space, the student space, the healthcare space in the US, I think is going to be one to watch. The other area I think that's going to be one to watch is the energy sector, because we've reached a point where running our economies the way we have since the Industrial Revolution is no longer sustainable. You know, once cars were in mass production, the days for the horse and carriage industry were numbered. And it feels as if we've reached something of a similar inflection point now with the climate crisis, where, you know, for all the noise and for all the climate deniers that we hear a lot from, there is actually under the surface, quite a broad political, scientific, civil society and investor consensus emerging that things are going to have to change and change quite fast. And of course, there will be winners and losers in such a seismic process of change. Therefore, a lot of fallout, some of which will have to be handled through bankruptcy systems. So that's the second, you know, the second, I guess, major change or trend that I see being impactful. Finally, we are now decisively, you mentioned Brexit, in a new geopolitical era. Uh, The post-World War II liberal internationalist American-led order looks as if it's in decline. As well as Brexit, we have a graphic illustration right now with ongoing events in Afghanistan. Uh, So for me, the immediate implication of all that is that it no longer makes sense to talk about cross-border insolvency in the way we used to in the 1990s and the early 2000s. We're in a very different world. And uh, my my Modified Universalisms article that came out a couple of years ago was an attempt to begin shifting the conversation a bit on that. Hmm. Thank you for that, Adrian. Very insightful indeed. 
So that was the first the first part of our little interview series, just focusing on insolvency law there. We're going to turn to your publications now, your approach to publications and research. Uh, a nice, easy one to start with. I, I think it's easy. It might not be. I don't know. How do you approach academic writing? And is there a routine that you follow or sources of inspiration that you find that help you get there? Well, the hardest thing is knowing when to stop reading and start writing, right? Yeah. I mean, isn't that the perennial problem, whether you're, you know, whether it's a, a master's thesis for an LLM or a, or, or a PhD thesis or, you know, doing what we're doing postdoctorally, that's the biggest one. You can't read everything. And piling up the books and articles can just, if you're not careful, become an excuse to procrastinate, even though, of course, it's, it's proper academic practice to ensure that what you want to say is properly grounded and situated within, within literatures. So I've always tried to correct against procrastination and distraction by ring-fencing specific times. So in the US, that mainly means the summer and the odd non-teaching day during semester. And I always like to start writing sooner rather than later. My stuff doesn't tend to go through many drafts because I'm a bit particular in the early drafts. I'm quite slow and I'm not really a great one for streams of consciousness. So oftentimes it's a bit painstaking, but what I'm coming out with by, you know, second draft stage is, is relatively polished. Then I think it's important once uh, I've got a draft to have people I respect read and comment on it. So I like to workshop drafts if at all possible to gauge reaction before working up to final draft and submission stage. As for sources of inspiration, well, there are plenty out there in terms of, I guess, you know, my own, my own mentors. But I've always tried to pay attention to what really good scholars do as a matter of craft and argumentation. And that's, you know, the case whether they're insolvency law people or not. So it's always worth, I think, a glance at, you know, what's getting published in the top peer-reviewed journals, because usually that stuff is in there for a reason, and it can provide a useful benchmark, I think. I tend to, tend to try to consume the academic literature but as broadly as I can, not just insolvency law, to see what good people are doing and how they're doing it. That's really interesting. I, I can't say I've ever branched out past, well, insolvency and employment, or just branched out past law. Do you ever branch out into areas other than law? Um, a little bit these days into a little bit of political science and international relations in the cross-border insolvency context. I mean, I, I've not really done it in explicitly in anything I've published. The modified universalisms thing that I mentioned a, a, a moment ago is probably the closest I've got. But I'm doing some work now, which, which has had me delving into international relations literature a little bit. So the answer is sort of yes. That's good enough for me. So you've mentioned collaboration, and uh, it's it's clear that you've had some a number of really successful and interesting collaborations during your uh, academic life. So you've collaborated with many people who we as early researcher academics consider the great and the good of insolvency law, such as yourself, you know. How have these opportunities arisen for you first? And how have you come to your collaborative ideas with those people? And then how do you figure out how to separate that work out? It's all a big series of accidents, I suppose. I mean, my first big productive collaboration that I, I, I probably known for was, was the one with John Armour 
And that sort of set the template. Of course, I worked with Malcolm Davis-White on the disqualification board, which you mentioned, too. So John and Malcolm were the two first big ones. John I just happened to meet when he was at the University of Nottingham. He'd read something I'd written. He was just starting out. We got talking. We started meeting regularly in the pub. Uh, we discovered that we got a lot in common outside of work, which led to some memorable hiking expeditions in the English Lake District in the Scottish Highlands. Um, since then, I've mostly collaborated with folks I know through Insol or through other academic networks. And you know, the story there has been we've, we've met up at a conference, we got into a conversation, we decided it might be nice to try to work together. So that happened with Donna Mackenzie Skeen, who taught me everything I know about Scottish personal insolvency law. It's the same story with the co-authoring I've done with folks like Jason Kilborn and more recently with Irrit, with Irrit Meverack. And the ideas have usually cropped up in those conversations. We've both got to be in our bonnet about something that overlaps. And so we've decided to work together and, you know, we sort of kind of rolled the dice. As for allocation of work, that's very much dependent on the project and the particular collaboration. I mean, I've been really lucky. It's been pretty natural and seamless with virtually all of the folks I've worked with, mainly because they're all really good people. I think it does make sense for one person in a co-author team to take the lead and undertake some measure of project management. Sometimes that's been me. Other times it's been my co-author. And of course, it does make sense to agree some division of labor, who's doing what by when, to have some kind of internal clock, uh, again, some kind of project management. The comparative projects, I think, are, are relatively kind of easy or easier. Framing is the hard thing. But, but you know, if, if I was writing with Donna, it's clear that Donna was going to take responsibility for the Scots law and I was going to take responsibility for England and Wales. Similarly, if you're writing with a, a comparativist of, of, of Jason's breadth and skill. But I think the hardest thing is fusing together the two voices And I think that comes down fundamentally to agreed frame. You've got to try to get to an agreed frame fairly fairly early on, rather than sort of just going off into your separate corners and doing your own separate thing. Advice on collaboration. Hmm. I guess give it a try, but pick your collaborators wisely. Do your due diligence. Uh, 95% of my co-authoring experiences have been positive and productive and have resulted in lifelong friendships. But it can go wrong if the personalities don't quite gel. And multi-authored works. So once it gets past sort of more than one or, you know, more than two of you can be a problem if some of the people aren't pulling their weight and meeting deadlines, which, which does happen. Yeah, I can uh, just to add to that. I've been involved in a collaboration with my uh, Yanil board with Insol Europe, and there are six of us. And somehow the to fates have seen to it that we have all collaborated beautifully on two articles now. So it is possible to have that many authors. But yes, you've got to make sure you have that right frame that you have identified. We identify the person who's in charge at the beginning of each article and they run it and tell us what to do. Right, right, because the danger always with the multi-authored stuff, it, 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 it becomes like a version of the way that some edited collections work, in that everyone starts off with this sort of grand idea that it's all going to be terribly coherent, and actually at the end of the day, everyone just goes off and writes their chapter, and somebody tries to write an introduction which sort of 
suggests that it all it all coalesces when often it doesn't really. And you know, it's hard to do. I mean, Irit's done it very successfully with the with the Bowen Group folks, with Janice, with Riz McCall, with Stefan. And you know, that that I think has been a remarkable accomplishment sort of along the lines of what you're talking about in your experience, because it's genuinely multi-authored and yes, at the same time, coherent, because the frame has been agreed, it's clear what everybody's doing, everybody's working within quite a strict template or within or thematically in a in a way that's been agreed and is tight. That's hard. I'm not tended to have that. I mean, I, I, I've been in one that went wrong, which was, which was multi-authored, but most of mine have been successful really because it's been, you know, one other person for the most part. And you felt your way into it. And either I knew the person from the, from before we started collaborating and we were a good fit personality-wise, or we've, we've decided to have a go and see where it went and it's gone somewhere. So... Um, as I say, most of my experiences have been, been really positive. And um, I've got a couple of new ones on the go. So, um, you know, if folks are interested, they should should watch this space because I've got hopefully a couple of things coming out with two two separate pieces of work, both of them with, with different people who I've not collaborated with before. So I'm still doing the collaboration thing. I think a collaboration enriches our research so much because you learn from your collaborators. And I have no doubt that people will be watching this space, Adrian. <laughs> um, another special question that I've, that I've designed just for you, knowing you a little bit as I do. So you're, you're not only a prolific and, and sought-after producer of high-quality academic literature and insolvency law, but you also create and perform your own music. So is there a connection you can identify between these two talents and does one perhaps help to inspire the other at all? Whether that's obviously maybe not in topic, but perhaps in energy and inspiration. All right, so you heard that rumor then. <laughs> well, assuming I have, have any aptitude for either, I, I'd say that the, the, the connecting point is they're both as much about craft and perspiration as they are about talent and inspiration. I'm not sure that one thing inspires the other. I like to keep them as, as separate domains. But the one thing I would say is there's no question that being involved in creating, making music has, has helped me stay sane, which I think is good for my students, good for my colleagues, and, and good for my continued productivity in the day job. So, it, you know, it's definitely a, a good thing. I mean, it, it was something I neglected for, for many years after I got out into the world and then got back into it big style once I got to the, to the U.S. I mean, being in a city like Chicago, you know, it's a, it's a very rich environment for all kinds of music. I think it's, uh, it's something I'm glad I got back into. And as I say, it certainly helps keep me sane. Yeah. Oh, having a few hobbies on the side, I find, are, are indeed very helpful, helpful, whether that's music or writing or, I guess, writing and writing. But writing poetry is a different animal from writing, you know, uh, insolvency law. Oh, sure. And I think that, that's, that's an interesting point, Jen. I think increasingly... I mean, I have the luxury that, you know, my, my career has nowhere to go. It's like it's, it's where it's got to and it's where it's staying. Uh, and so, you know, I can experiment perhaps a little bit more. But I think, you know, reading more widely outside of law, outside of insolvency law first, which we sort of talked about a bit earlier, and even outside law altogether, 
can actually be quite enriching in the way that you in the way that you craft your writing. So um, certainly, uh, if you can find the time, it's a it's a good idea to try and do those sorts of things. Okay. So our last few questions are some specific advice that we're hoping you might be able to give to our early career researcher listeners, because we all struggle with stress. We struggle with with lack of motivation. There are many, many things that we all struggle with, but you've probably built or developed some, some good tools in this area. So the first question is, when you feel overwhelmed, unfocused, or you've lost your focus temporarily, what do you do to try to regain that focus? I think I'm quite good at focus. Um, my wife would say that I'm focused to the point of preoccupation, and it's something that drives her mad. But there's certainly been times, in fact, many occasions in 30 years of a career when I felt completely overwhelmed. And that's very, very easy in our industry. As you know, it's so easy to get overcommitted, particularly, I think, early in a career when you're trying to forge a path. One thing comes along and you go, that seems like a good idea. I'll sign up and do that. And then two weeks later, something else comes along that's even better. Um, You know, what are you going to do? Especially, as I say, early in a career. So in in those situations, when I found myself there, I mean, I've learned to do a couple of things. First, try to rationalize the to-do list. So is there anything on there that I can lose without too much cost to others and too much cost to myself? And then seconds, I try to flip the switch. So stop thinking about all the things on the to-do list, you know, the big, the macro to-do list, and concentrate on what concrete steps I can take now, today. And I find that once you limit what you're trying to achieve to just a couple of manageable things on a given day and then get down to work, you start to make progress and feel better. But that, that's, the big, that's the big one, trying to control that feeling of being overwhelmed by I think sort of trying trying to reframe the task. You know, a to a to-do list that's ninety-five pages long is not something that you want to see when you when you're feeling overwhelmed. And so you have to kind of manage your way out of that and and I guess psychologically just make it much more manageable and say, well, I can't do ninety-five things, but I might be able to do one. Yeah. A good friend of mine once said, in fact, uh, you will know this person, Graham Ferris once told me that if it's not going to matter in five years, it shouldn't matter now. Well, Graham was very wise. And, and as you know, Graham was one of my, one of my great friends and, and allies in Nottingham Trent. He's retired now, I believe. But you've, uh, yeah, you've reminded me that um, yeah, everybody needs the wisdom of someone like Graham in their lives. Exactly. Well, that was very, very helpful. Thank you. So thinking now about students or PhD students, let's say, who are coming to the end of their PhD and they're thinking about what to do next. They're entering the real world. We'll call the real world of academia. What advice would you give to them at this stage looking forward, pre-viva, say? I think it's important to build and nurture your networks in the academy, but also in practice. You know, I'm, I, I guess I've always been a relatively practice-oriented sort of academic and all the academic work I've ever done that I'm proud of was improved by talking to practitioners. But building and nurturing, nurturing networks is, is, is critical, I think. That would be my, uh, my top line. Okay, that's perfect. But I, I have to definitely agree with you because that's certainly where I've gotten most of my opportunities has been from my involvements in mainly in so international and in Seoul Europe, most definitely. 
highly, highly, that's how I met you. <laughs> that was one of the downsides of being in networks, but, but you know. Oh, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> okay. Well, do you have any specific advice for early, an early career, career researcher, particularly about mistakes that they should try to avoid or opportunities that they should definitely take up if they want to have a successful academic career? Well, I mean, build and nurture your networks again as, as specific advice. I mean, I wouldn't have had a career. I wouldn't have had anything like the career I've had if it wasn't for folks like uh, Barry Ryder, Len Seeley, David Millman, Roy Good, and of course, beloved to us in Insol were late in Fletcher. So that again, I would underscore. Try to get your stuff in front of more senior folks and have them comment on it. I mean, that's really just a variation on networks, I suppose. But a first thought note that acknowledges helpful comments on earlier drafts from a David Millman or a Jay Westbrook has effectively been peer-reviewed prior to submission. And it's those kinds of folks that you'll need ultimately to write recommendations and tenure and promotion letters for you as your careers progress. So really just a variation on a theme of the networks, I suppose. But, you know, those folks are busy, but don't be afraid. You will know from dealing with me uh, that you know, a lot of folks, a lot of folks you come across in the Insolvency Academy are pretty approachable, regardless of how senior they are. And you know, ultimately, the more senior we get, the more of a stake we have in making sure that we pass a baton on to the uh, to the next generation. And we've got an active gener- uh, with an active interest and incentive, indeed, to to help support you. So, you know, it could well be that an email disappears into the ether. That does happen. But but never be afraid to ask. That's that one. Finally, for me, and this is just me talking, I mean, I would say don't ignore your students. I found that if you do right by your students, they generally do right by you. And I know that teaching and mentoring students can feel like it gets in the way of building a publication track record. But my own view is that you'll have lesser, less of a career if you try to put all your eggs in the research basket, you know, unless, of course, your, your appointment is 100% a research appointment. So I guess mostly networks, again. I think I can add to your second point there about the approachability of, the, of the, basically the, the whole of the Insolvency Academy, senior or not. I remember a very, very lovely breakfast that I had with you and Jay Westbrook and Christoph Henkel in Chicago. And I remember you introducing me to Jay, and I was like somebody was introducing me to, well, for me, it would have to be Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. You know, I'd be like a puddle on the floor. It was the same kind of being starstruck. But I sat next to that man and had the most fantastic conversation. And that kind of really brought it to reality that these are just people. They're people you admire. They're people who's who've gone before you and, and laid some wonderful paths and, and set some great questions that you can play with in your own life. But they are people and they are approachable. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the case, right, that in, in, in the academy writ large, there are folks out there who are, are humility-free zones. But it doesn't seem to be, uh, certainly hasn't been my experience been the story in insolvency law. You know, I, I had the same experience you had meeting Jay, you know, when I first met Helen Seeley and Roy Good. I met Ian. I thought, 
why are they going to want to be to be talking to me? Why are they going to be interested in in, in me at all? And the truth of, of, it, of it is, they were because they're interested in the development of the subject in the academy, and they saw it as being something that they wanted to do, and, and to some extent felt obligated to do. And I think that's it. Almost feels as if that's in the DNA with with, with our group of, of folks, because you know I was brought up that way and feel the same way myself about about sort of trying to dispense what guidance I can and sort of commenting on drafts when people would, would like my advice on things. Uh, so I do think it's important to, I suppose, screw your courage to the sticking place and go and introduce yourself to some of these people who you you, you might sort of coming through a PhD of, of sort of hero worshipped. They are, as you say, approachable, human, and only often only too willing to help. I think we've been very fortunate in the the field that we've chosen for academia for that reason. I really do. So my last question on the set questions is about funding. What advice would you give an early career researcher who may need funding? Uh, what should they go to uh, people they know? Should we always be getting funding with senior academics or should we be going off on our own and trying it out ourselves? Do, is there a way to start that you would advise? Uh, I think the way to start is small, probably. I mean, I'm no great authority on large research council type grants, you know, the sort of thing in the UK, which would be ESRC, AHRC, or in the US, you know, National Science Foundation or something like that. I mean, I'm involved in pitching for one of those large grants right now. And I have had a little bit of UK research council funding in the past. But most of my research funding has come through research contracts where there was a tendering process and I was invited to tender by the funder. And so the prospects of success were usually as good as 50-50, if not better. So on the large side of things, you know, writing large grant applications, its own industry, its own art form, there's a knack to it. And if the institutional support isn't there, it's really hard to do. And because the research council model pretty much grew out of funding for hard science, applying for those large grants is, to my mind, unquestionably best done as a team endeavor. And so you're probably best to be biding your time, building a publication track record first, trying to pick up little pots here and there, such as travel grants to get to, your, to, to, get to conferences and build your networks. And those little pots make you very popular with you know, your heads of department and deans because it makes you self-sufficient. It means that you can go and do what you want to do without being a burden on your local budgets. And then as you develop, for the bigger stuff, it, it, it does make sense to get yourself into a team with established researchers if you can. And my other thought on the big stuff, you know, once you get there, is given the success rates for the large grants are typically not high, you always need to have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C you're going to spend a heck of a lot of time working up grant applications and you need some payoff. And even if you don't get the grant, you need some other kind of payoff. You need the work that's gone in to actually produce some sort of uh, output. So, you know, what I'm doing at the moment, you know, we're quite clear that we have odds that are probably no better than around 10 to 1, maybe 5 to 1 on a good day. But we have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C. Whatever happens, we'll do something with the collaboration of the project. 
and we have a we have a pretty clear idea what Plan C looks like, and maybe Plan D. So um, you know, I think that, I think it's important to approach it like that because otherwise, you could spend an awful lot of time getting nowhere, and then somebody says to you, "Well, what have, what have you been doing lately?" Yeah, I can I can relate to that. One of the approaches that I've taken recently has been almost to create a project that is modular. In effect, it's got lots of different bits that you could that they could stand alone, that could produce articles on their own, that would then fit together as a larger whole, as a monograph or as a huge report. I haven't gotten the funding yet myself either, but I know that I've got these pots of work that I could do even without the funding during my research time. I could get it done. Yeah, and that, that makes complete sense to me, Jen. Uh, that's a really good approach and one that I would certainly commend to uh, to our listeners because that way, you know, you've got some kind of hedge. I mean, most institutions will pat you on the back for having a go, even if you're not successful, because, you know, it's chicken and egg. If you don't have a go, you'll, you don't buy a ticket to the raffle, mixing metaphors, not going to have any chance of winning. So sensible institutions understand that, you know, there's no guarantee of success. But I think having a strategy like that where you can demonstrate that you have you've genuinely made a coherent application. It's been internally reviewed. It's been given the the green light. But also, there are other things you can do with it. You can take pieces of it and develop them in other ways, so that you're not you know it's not a completely zero sum. I spent all that time and now I'm sort of just flushing it down the toilet. I think that's um, that's very sound. So a very good approach to take. Yeah. And it's, it's not only that, you, you may submit to funding and then be rejected. And that does happen more often than not. In my most recent approach there, I went for something with the Irish Research Council, got rejected. But the feedback I got gave me my new methodology. It gave me my new theoretical framework, which is now an inspiration for about three different projects I'm doing. So don't, I think that if I were to give advice, which I know it's not my job to give advice here, but it's, it's, you can learn from that criticism. You can learn from that feedback. And that's what you should do. That's what we have to do as academics. No, I think that's absolutely right. Okay. So that takes us to the end of the, oh my gosh, I know these questions. I hope you're not too nervous about what comes next. <laughs> so the first, the first sort of non-seen question I have for you, you've talked about reading outside of insolvency and how that can influence and, and help in your perspective. So my question is about reading and about books. So what book or books have you given? There are two questions. Have, have you given the most as a gift and why? And what are the one or two or three books that have greatly influenced your own life and perspective? Oh, wow. Um, the books I tend to give out these days or give as gifts these days tend to be books about nature, the outdoors, outdoor pursuits and things like that. So. There's a, which and this shows you how what a random person I am. <laughs> There's a book by a guy called Richard Asquith called Feet in the Clouds, which is all about the the history of fell running, in particular in the English Lake District, which is an area of the world that I have a particular fondness for. And uh, he weaves this tale of his own attempts to complete something called the Bob Graham Round, which is basically of 42 peaks in the Lake District in 24 hours. And he, and he, he, he weaves a history of fell running sort of alongside a narrative about his own attempt to do the Bob Graham round. And I, I love that book. 
And you know, even if you're not a runner, and even if you're not, if you're not a, a hill walker or somebody that's particularly interested in that side of things, as a piece of social history, and as a, I guess if you know, if you like journeys, that you know, journeys writ large, both both physical and metaphorical, it's a wonderful book. So Richard Richard Asquith's Feet in the Clouds, books that have inspired me. Oh wow. I mean, latterly, it's the same kind of stuff. I love all the Robert McFarlane books, you know, Mountains of the Mind, The Old Ways, which, again, really are about, about journeys and about, you know, how we shape the world and how the world shapes us. So I, I, a lot of that sort of stuff, I think, I would say, of late is what inspires me. Going back in the dawns of in the, of the annals of history, I'm not so sure. You've stumped me on that one. <laughs> you've given a perfectly good answer. In fact, you've now given me the answer to what I'm giving my husband for Christmas. Because <laughs> we both do a bit of fell running as well, so that's. Oh yeah, from your point, you're from yeah, of course, from your part of your part of the world, from where you live. Yeah. Out in Peak out District. In the peak. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a perfect answer and no worries at all. Um, the last question I have, another one of these zinger questions, I don't think it's really a zinger, is essentially about sort of your personal philosophy. The way the question is framed is like, if you had a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, trying to get a message out to whether it's early researchers or just people generally, what would that billboard say? What is that personal philosophy that you think everyone should have within themselves? Well, two things. The first one is there is no single theory, theory of everything. So, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, again, I hinted this in the modified universalisms piece. I, I tend to struggle with, with people that want a unifying theory of the world or, you know, or, or, or a field or a subfield. I, I think the world's far too messy for that. So yeah, there is no single theory of everything. Would be my would, would be my strap line. That would be the first one. The second one would be would just be be kind. I, I do tend to think that, and I, again, I've perhaps hinted at this in some of my responses about my own mentors and and the obligation that myself as a senior academic feels towards those like yourself who who are are the next generation. Yeah, you know, I, I I think kindness. Does tend to pay repay itself. Actually, it doesn't. It doesn't do you any harm to to try to be approachable and try to be helpful. And I think oftentimes, you know, it enhances your reputation. It does you good, actually, in a sort of enlightened self-interest kind of way. So, no single theory of, every, of, of everything, and be kind. So, what what I guess is my is, is my uh, my philosophical position. And the other is sort of my, my, my ethical position. Sounds brilliant to me. I love it. So that's the end of all the questions. I think the one thing we can take away from this is everyone needs to read your article on modified universalism. So that is a key. But otherwise, thank you incredibly much for joining us today, Adrian, on this very fascinating and, and entertaining interview. I thought it was entertaining anyway. And I guess um, we'll talk to you guys next time. <laughs> well, thanks very much for having me, Jen. It's been a pleasure. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. Contact us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Insole International using the hashtag Insole Talks. The information provided is intended for a general audience and reflects the personal views of the participants. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Thank you for listening. <laughs>